With each passing second, I pushed my feet upon the pedals, swaying so that my weight leant slightly on either side as I pressed down, prizing the bicycle forward so that I might disappear into the bush. I was on a borrowed bike, going down the backcountry roads, slogging against a southerly, going between flattened poppy fields and dairy yards where the cows looked stunned at the discombobulating combination of my slender limbs and unkempt hair, leaning upon handlebars which sprouted over a spindly frame and rattling wheels. Every click there was another carcass. More shredded roadkill throwing up its stink. And the kookaburras were compact as bricks, stout and stoic like Greek statues on the power lines with unruffled feathers and upturned beaks. Then they stared downwards, as if they were waiting for me to pass beneath them before they'd laugh. As if I was comic relief. The rising sun made mist steam off the bitumen, and I was unravelling every inch of it as I moved towards the horizon, where hulking shoulders of fog hunched upon the hills. The change of season had started to suck the emerald colours out of introduced deciduous species, but behind it all, the bush remained unchanged. The blue-grey backdrop of native never-quite greens. I was riding to a cabin underneath the mountains. Was there a reason? Not really. Yet it now strikes me that it was the fruition of all that I had come to want from life. Fresh air and liberty. It was early in the day and the road was empty but for me. In one country town I took the time to stop at a white wayside chapel and read the names on the graves, reckoning that every cemetery's message to us is that we may never manage to take the same route ever again. And there's probably nothing in the world with more pathos than a list of names. I carried a notebook in my top pocket and I knew that someday it too would be a catalogue of those whom I'd lost along the way. Later on, nearer to midday, I reached an intersection where an old weatherboard school stood with melancholy pride. My legs were tired, but I carried on, past a scrap iron shed, across a bridge, into the forest. I leaned into a corner to follow the river, which looked like so much tortoise shell melted down and spouted through a conduit, yet another chasm in the mountains above me. Man ferns minded the way. Rosellas burst out of the wet and seedy banks and I chased them down the road, along the Liffey River, towards the cabin. All I needed was some movement and something to move towards. And once there, a palace of wooden shingles in which to etch an alphabet of memories, to record the names of those I'd known and loved. For a home helps us shoulder the burden of all the sticky silver dew of what we've made our lives from, even if it's just home for a couple of days. 
I unlatched the gate, let myself in, and produced a set of keys from the backpack I'd borne for the past 50-odd kilometres. When I got into the cabin, I took a spoonful of honey that I'd bought from a roadside stall to renew my energy and sat shirtless on the dusty floorboards. A window of brittle glass yawned towards the sun and let the light in. I opened up a book and a bottle of stout and took a deep breath. The sun began to dip behind the eucalypts. I gathered wood and brewed fire in a big cast iron belly to warm my bare feet. I was maybe 23 years old and it was the first time that I'd been alone in the timber cabin that had already shaped so many of my ideas about shelter and belonging, that had first started to hone an instinct of how to fit in with certain Tasmanian landscapes and which had put the seed in my mind that I ought to spend much of my life under that particular mountain range. Previously, I'd come here with school camps and later with groups of mates. With both, we had organised a rabble of large-scale games on the lawn in front of the cabin. Perhaps the most memorable trip up there involved a food fight, my friends and I throwing out-of-date yoghurt and corn relish at one another whilst wearing face paint and fancy dress. We dragged mattresses into the mess hall and wrestled. One night we had a talent show. Trod the timber boards in an absurd display of unusual and useless skill. It was as if we couldn't help but thrust a bit of chaos into the quiet. It should be said, though, that in the middle of it all were the first real stirrings of an understanding of the nature of this place, of how you might relate to it. The forests clambered up the slopes of a major mountain range, and there were animals you just didn't see in town. Scarlet robins, hawks, bandicoots. And up the back there, there was a wedge of rock called Titicatica, or Dry's Bluff, depending on which map you looked at. It rose up and blushed pink when you stood at the kitchen door with a cup of tea in the early hours of dawn. And we sensed that somewhere up there was a story that we hadn't yet sussed out. To climb Titicatica, you take a precipitous track that begins at the back door of Bob Brown's old cottage. Bob came down from the mainland as a doctor some decades ago. I'm told he moved to Tassie to search for thylacines, but instead he found something else, 
something almost as elusive. A purpose in life. The project to save the wilderness. He also found this cottage in the Liffey Valley and got it for a couple of grand, I think. When he first saw it, he wrote a letter to his mother stating, I think I've come home. Bob has named the block Ura Ura after an Aboriginal woman from 200 years ago. The cottage is painted white, which on most days contrasts starkly with the dark dolerite of the mountain behind it. The bluff is often capped with cloud, and sometimes wreaths of light mist create an illusion of double vision, as if the mountain were semi-transparent and multiple summits were overlain on top of one another. The first time I hiked up there, sun shone in Bob Brown's front yard. The daffodils were in bloom, so too the last of the silver wattle. But halfway up the slope, just as I started scraping my way up a slippery ledge of sandstone, hanging on to a sketchy bit of rope, snow blustered through. At the summit I wore a tiara of ice flakes, and clung to the trig point as strong gusts tried to hurl me off. But through the clouds I could see that far below, the farms were still coated in thick, yellow, buttery light, where flowers blossomed. Bob Brown felt it in his bones. He'd come home. He rode his bike to the practice in Launceston and cycled back for the weekends on a route much like one I took decades later. In the living room of his cottage, Billy's boiled for tea and friends in knitted beanies dreamed up a vision for conserving the bush in Tassie. Behind them a mixed forest rose towards the bare crags. Tall white gums over diverse scrub, pinkberry and pepperberry, needlebush and yellow bush, and rainforest species in shadowy areas, sassafras and myrtle overseeing the creeks that fell in cascades down defiles. The hill was habitat for all sorts of critters, just as the Liffey Cottage was a refuge for a certain species of person and cradled ideas that probably needed a safe space to exist as well. But the neighbours weren't necessarily fond of these ring-ins or their opinions. I guess in Tasmania there are always different ways of seeing country. The first white fellas in the Liffey Valley had sought landscapes that would support a certain way of living. Timber came tumbling down, milled and split for palings and posts, sold off or swapped for other goods. Scrub was cleared to grass, pasture for sheep and cows. It was often a hard life, and it required a suite of skills that most folks don't have these days. The old people, the original Tasmanians, had used the resources differently again. They'd burnt the forests at intervals, creating grounds for hunting, and also sought nourishment from the native vegetation that grew in gullies and verges, and in the regrowth. Spirits, ancestors and stories were entwined with the earth and the stars above. In the valleys there were arenas for song and dance, retreats for feasts and art made of minerals and rock. 
when the first immigrants of British and Irish background ventured out from Launceston to the Westwood in the 1820s, there was violence. Conflict born of colonisation is recorded all throughout these foothills. The terrain is marked with killings and wears the loss and absence of those first folks like a set of scars. So home's a tricky word on this island. Wherever I have tried to rest my head, I've found myself ill at ease. Some nights sleep breeds strange dreams in which I'm forced to remember that my peaceful life is built upon the bodies of those who have suffered before me. I'm pretty sure it's a condition I share with others, even if we don't all have the words for it or haven't figured out how to face up to the feelings. Somewhere within us there's a swirl of sorrow, fear, guilt and regret. And we who today believe we belong to this land know from our studies of history that we are in fact on shaky ground. Plenty of mountain huts in Tasmania, but to get to almost any of them, you have to walk in, usually an hour or so at the least. This means you can only really take with you a backpack of belongings, but at Liffey we could drive in, so we rocked up with eskies of food, bottles of wine, stacks of books, musical instruments, bags of clothes, balls and other games. Yet even supplies like these seemed minimal compared to what we might carry around with us throughout the rest of our lives. To make a phone call, we had to walk up the road to where the reception wandered about intermittently. None of us bothered. We'd chosen to be cut off, having just figured that from such experiences, adulthood could be made. Sometimes we ended up at Liffey on important occasions, like the day of a federal election. We'd cast our votes that morning in local booths, then drove out to the cabin. There was this novel that we'd all had to study in high school called Tomorrow When the War Began. Its plot has some young people returning from a camping trip to a world that has collapsed into global war. So of course we laughed about that scenario while we were out there, inventing the dystopia to which we might return. Perhaps now we wouldn't joke about it catastrophe like that seems so much more plausible to us these days. I'd first gone out there with a bunch of teenagers for a long weekend in winter. We slid down frosted knolls on cushions upholstered in vinyl, cooked great vats of soup and 
spoke sincerely about how to make a better world. That seems like a different lifetime now. But as time goes on, it strikes me as a decent starting point for my relationship with that place. I was a kaleidoscope, a figure in flux, swirling colours and shimmering shape. I was looking for some sort of life story, investigating initiations of various kinds, trying to figure out where I could belong. At Liffey later on, on long weekends with mates, I read the works of Christian mystics, read Walt Whitman's poems and acquainted myself with Hindu philosophy. I was 20 or so years old then, and it was my fourth or fifth time at the cabin. I was only a few weeks away from flying to India for the first time. Another mate had brought along an album of photographs, pictures of the Ganges. Like a devotee making ablutions in that grubby stream, I strode down to the fresh and freezing Liffey and dunked myself in. If water that cold didn't make you clean, nothing would. In the same spirit, several of us took Henry David Thoreau's book Walden with us to Liffey, grasping at an attempt to understand our own experience of life in the woods. We had begun to suspect that such lives were improvements, even if Thoreau did exaggerate his isolation in literature. Another author I read around that time was John O'Donoghue, an Irish poet with a spiritual bent. He wrote that most of us were moving about now in such a thicket of excess that we could no longer make out the real contours of things. We agreed. Simplicity was something we were beginning to yearn for, feeling that most of modern life was cluttered, full of rubbish. The Liffey Cabin gave us our first taste of how you might create a clear space in your life in order to sense the true value of everything. My mates and I had begun scrutinising human society, looking at how the lives around us were lived. We were learning how to be critical, how to think for ourselves. I was beginning to believe you could have your own way of doing things. Some of the biggest choices I've ever made can be traced back to these visits to the Liffey Cabin. There I began to dream that I would have my own hut in the bush one day, my own patch of land, my own neighbourhood in a native landscape that I could know in all seasons and moods. I would have affection for it, like Thoreau did at Walden. He wrote that he fell in love even with his rows of beans, and that didn't seem so silly to me at all. As for the cabin in which I would come to dwell, I envisioned that it would be much like the one at Liffey. It was built from boards of eucalyptus wood, with a big cast iron furnace and a north-facing window that gulped in whatever sunshine it could. It was a hermit's hut, and it was a verdant temple, a private library and a whiskey bar, a promised land flowing with insects and whispers plonked between a rushing river and a crackling fire in a group of cool mountain air, well-watered, visited by wrens and robins. As it turns out, I still have faith in slowness and silence. I still crave clean water and wild weather. 
I'm attuned to birdsong and pay attention to the movements of other animals. I long for fire and for shadows. If I'm not with companions constantly, it's fine with me. Instead, I prefer friendships like those we cultivated at Liffey. Friendships that are unhurried and richly textured. Where you're caught up after a good while with plenty to talk about. Such were the lessons we learned back then. It was a place of spiritual instruction all along. Although the things I figured out weren't exactly what we'd expected. I remember going to a wedding up the Liffey Valley. The groom had once been my best mate. We'd wrestled our way through philosophy courses, sat next to each other in ancient Greek lessons, even listened to one another's first tentative lectures. By his wedding day, we'd already started to drift apart, though. His bride was a beautiful woman and she smiled serenely in her white dress. I'd written a poem for them, a couple of stanzas, a series of guesses about what love might be like. But I was single and couldn't imagine knowing I wanted to spend the rest of my life with someone. Looking over the shoulders of the newlyweds, though, I could see old Dryer's Bluff, Tai Titicatika, and that seemed an entity with which I could be wedded. I had no idea how to share my life with another individual. But to have it entwined with the bush, the mountains, a winding river, that I could figure out. The Tasmanian poet and philosopher Pete Hay once wrote that to rediscover home was the great unarticulated issue of our time. Too many of us, he reckoned, live like exiles or refugees, edged out of the places where our most important memories are kept, where we might find our identities. Perhaps part of the problem is that we get hung up on preconceived ideas around property, about the housing market, about owning our own block. These days there are a thousand telly shows about home renos. We're obsessed with perfect kitchenware and immaculate bathrooms and every room has to be fit out for Instagram, first of all. But at some point I started wondering if home actually had to be something made of brick or weatherboard. Maybe there didn't even need to be a garden at the bottom of a stone path. The first Tasmanians, after all, didn't just plant themselves down in one place for the rest of their lives. They weren't sedentary, but moved around to make the most of the resources of the landscape. 
For the most part, it seems that their shelters were temporary dwellings, to be eventually dismantled by the weather and easily rebuilt the following season. To me, this suggested that you could have a crack at thinking about home in an altogether different way. I remember that there was this bat who stayed with us at Liffey for a while. Throughout the day, it took its rest hanging upside down on a horizontal beam by the kitchen. Bats aren't always picky about where they roost, I guess. Cave spaces, crevices, tree hollows or rooftop cavities all suffice. Their ideas about home are probably different to ours, I suppose. And that's just one other critter. Every day we cross paths with the countless abodes of other animals. Some of them catch our attention. Many we never see. Some we even destroy, intentionally or without knowing it. There are nests of all sorts. Grassy mounds, woody cups, bowls suspended from between the branches. Possums and echidnas sleep in hollows in the trees in horizontal trunks. The enormous mansions of sea eagles are constructed slowly over multiple generations, and wombats dig deep shafts, permanent earthworks. Some animals are devoted to their shelters, others are vagrants and wanderers. The Arctic Turn, which can visit Tasmania on its annual 40,000 kilometre round trip, is content to lay its eggs in a mere scrape in some gravel after all that. I too have roved the globe, moving swiftly as if on the wing, to the Arctic and back again, only to sleep in the back seat of my car when I got home. The basic fact of it is that I haven't yet made the money to take a block of land and call it my own. To knock up a cabin that faces the equator and squints in sunlight. To grow bouquets of kale and row upon row of lovable beans. Mostly that dream feels out of reach for me. Like some other people my age, I've found it hard to work out how to make the sort of money I need to get myself a patch of country. To get a foot in the door in the housing market, as they say. What I've done instead is trained myself to try and perceive the whole surface of the island on which I was born as my home. I have borrowed from other creatures concepts of how you might find or make a shelter. Like a skink, I've learned to retreat to strange corners. Like a frogmouth, I've discovered how to sleep disguised throughout the day. Like a possum, I have my bolt holes where I might go and pass out at the end of a long night. I've retreated to common land or unseen places in public parks. I've slept at workplaces or sat houses for a time. I've occasionally thought of myself as one of those lichens that doesn't have its own root system, but relies entirely upon the infrastructure of other species in a forest. In some respects, that's pretty fun. But not having control over circumstances can be stressful, 
especially if you find yourself suspecting that the whole system is about to collapse. Then what? On the other hand, I've often wondered what it must be like to find your block, build your shack, and then have a bushfire burn through. Property is a concept that has little to do with the rhythms of the environment around us, or the changing climate. Like so many of the promises we've come to believe in, this seems to be another social structure based on at least a few unreliable assumptions. Now that hut at Liffey belonged to a church mob, and because of that I never imagined that it could actually be available as the hut that I lived in. I figured the church would hold on to it forever. Churches tend to like to keep their investments, or so I'm told. But no. A few years ago it came up for sale to my surprise. On one of the open days, I went back down to the cabin and poked around, pretending I might be a potential buyer. I acted out an inspection of the entire property. The names carved into the interior had been covered over with hessian, but I knew that they were there. They were secret names, just like my hut dream had been clandestine, at first secret to even myself and the place still burbled with memories and whispers, as it did with insects and mice. The real estate agent assured me it was going for a very good price. That may be so, but it was still well beyond my reach. Like a migratory bird, I was forced to raise my wings and soar off, to say goodbye not knowing when I'd be back. My worry was that I was saying goodbye to a version of myself, to a possibility of who I might have been. But in recent times I've been invited to move into another shack. It's not a replica of what I'd found in Liffey, but it is in a forest, and it's facing north, and it's got a cast iron stove in it for warmth. And it's beneath the same mountain range, which had come to feel something like home from the first time I'd slept beneath it. I'm renting, so it's probably an impermanent solution. But nowadays I have the space and solitude I knew I needed. I dwell with lizards, marsupials and insects, and the treetops sway with the cold winds that blow from far beyond the Tasmanian landmass. I suspect that for me, home is made up of the familiar ecosystems found on these particular slopes where white gums grow tall then make space for alpine scrub, all built from dolerite, and a home for countless other creatures as well. Perhaps my questions and considerations won't lead to property, to signing a contract so that I can say that I own so many square metres of the earth. Maybe it was never about carving out space and fencing it up so that I didn't have to share it. Some days I seem to enjoy my rented address more, knowing it's not mine. That it's impermanent. That it doesn't belong to me, but that I, in fact, belong to it. For a moment in time at least. 
Moments in time are all we ever really are promised after all. But here I go again. Sounding like one of those Hindu mystics I read about so many years ago. It was May and I was driving home via the Liffey Valley. I pulled into the car park at Bob Brown's old cottage just to look up at the mountain as the sun set upon it. But my reverie was immediately interrupted by a female hiker. Someone's gone missing on the mountain, she said in a European accent with her face so deadpan that I thought she was taking the piss. But that afternoon, a migrant support group had been hosting a picnic there, and a young woman had gotten into an argument with her mates and taken off into the bush, lurching off the track up Taititikatika and into rough, prickly scrub. She was a Hazara refugee from Afghanistan. The police had been called, but now they'd gone AWOL, and the picnic party had dispersed as well. So now only this tourist and I were here, as dusk began to fall. I knew someone who worked as a social worker with recent migrants, so I drove off to get her and some search and rescue gear just in case. And we raced back on the gravel back roads through a grey dusk. My tyres only just kept their grip on the loose rock, and the wallabies thankfully leapt away from the path of my car, I remember kookaburras, pale in the moonlight, swooping ahead of us from fence post to fence post like angels guiding the way. We made an impromptu depot at Bob Brown's place and I ventured into the bush, calling out the woman's name. But there was no response. We turned back and walked along the road, hoping to wander into a wafting patch of reception so we could call the police and get them to come back. An eastern-barred bandicoot bounded around our feet. Thankfully, the night was warm for autumn. 
The moon was a glowing disk and let us see a little, even through the eucalypt forest. It was a beautiful night, and on the grass by the withered daffodils, our spontaneous search and rescue team had regrouped to try and work out what to do next. I think I've come home, Dr Brown had written to his mum forty-odd years before, and I had scrawled the same sort of thing in my journal when I'd first found the Liffey Valley as well. But what did that place feel like to a refugee from Central Asia, lost and alone in the dark? Did the bisyllabic call of the Bubuk owls not seem threatening? Did the scraping sound of gum trees in the breeze seem harsh and heartless? Did the trickling creeks mutter and murmur like creeps? And when the possums screeched and bickered and screamed, what horrors might it have reminded her of? This was a woman who'd grown up in a camp in a country that was not her family's. She had known exile and displacement from her first days in a way that was more than philosophical. And it seemed to me that the roads that had led her deep into the bush were not fair or reasonable. It was hard to compare. I remembered riding out to the Liffey cabin to take in some solitude and feeling respite at the sight of the mountain's crags of Dolorite. But could you find any peace here if your life had forever been tormented with good reasons to feel frequent, if not constant, fear? Then out of the darkness, two cops materialised with the young woman by their side. They'd managed to get a rough GPS reading from the last phone call she'd answered, apparently. The police officers looked stressed in their hiking boots and board shorts. But the Hazara woman was self-contained. She was still immaculately dressed, her headscarf neat around her forehead. And she had this quiet smile on her face. One of the cops told us that they'd found her sitting on a log with a moth resting on her knee. This is my friend, she'd said. And I thought how strange it was that even in this situation, she'd found comfort in that place and solace in the fact that she shared it with all sorts of other critters. How strange. But how familiar as well. I don't know much about what happened to that woman after this drama was over. I have no doubt that the night under Dry's bluff didn't entirely heal her, that her existence was still affected by a whole lifetime of trauma. The search for home carries on for her, and it does for me too. I suspect that the story each of us has to tell is in its essence the tale of how we've gone about trying to find our place on this planet. And for some of us, that story is an epic, well worth telling, well worth listening to. And those stories, they are there, in layer upon layer, all over the Liffey Valley.